Ahoy, hello and welcome. It's time for an adventure. You're going on a big journey. We're exploring the entire universe in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan. This is the show where we search out all those science secrets lurking through the solar system. And we've got lots on the show. It's a very busy one. We're covering all sorts. We're chatting to a space expert, Ed Turner, who knows everything about lunar bases. These are places where space agencies all around the world, they're trying to get to the moon and set up homes and service stations there so we can travel onwards. So this is actually a very, very interesting topic of conversation. It's actually illegal to own things out in space. Um, there is actually kind of space law and you can become a space lawyer. That is a real job that you can become. Also, talking about space, we'll head to Deep Space High. It's the smartest school in the solar system. For the last few weeks, we've been learning about Mars. This week, you can hear how the dust on the red planet tries to ruin everything that we do. Dust storms are quite common on Mars because the terrain is so dry and, well, dusty. Certain times of the year are worse than others, but one thing is certain. If you go to Mars, you have to be able to cope with dust. And I've got your questions to answer as always. This week they're on animals, on the deadly ones and the ones that live a long time. It's all coming up in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's start with this week's Science in the News. Scientists at the Natural History Museum have used the future of tech to tell us about the past. It's been using AI, artificial intelligence, to study dinosaur teeth and make a picture to figure out which dinosaur they probably belonged to. They found teeth fossils but couldn't quite figure out which dinosaur might have had them. But by using computers to judge how big, wide and sharp they are, the AI has decided the teeth could be from a group of dinos called Manoraptorans, which are relatives of birds, and they could have existed 30 million years older than they first thought. That's brilliant. We're wondering so much about AI about what it might do to help us out but that it will help us figure out more about the past and help science and history is absolutely brilliant also there's a new map of mars that has been made which you can use NASA's Mars rover has taken loads of photos and over the last six years a team of experts have stitched together 110,000 pictures to make an incredibly detailed map of the red planet. It's called the Global CTX Mosaic of Mars map and it lets you zoom in and see what's happening there in 3D. You've got to search this online, you've got to check it out. You can scan all around Mars as if it was planet Earth, see what's happening. And it's not been a brilliant week for Elon Musk's company, SpaceX. They were due to blast off a rocket earlier this week. That was stopped at the last moment because a frozen valve meant the rocket couldn't lift off as planned. Then when they did manage to take it off, the booster tried to separate, systems failed, and SpaceX blew up in midair. Musk did congratulate his team on an exciting test launch and say they would try again in a few months' time. Let's spin the wheel to find out another letter in our A to Z of Engineering series then. For the last few weeks, we've been hearing about engineering, how you make stuff, who makes it, who designed it, who came up with it, what it does. And we're headed back to Engineer Academy with our engineering expert, Engers. He helps us spin the wheel to find out what letter we're landing on this week. Hello and welcome to another Engineering Academy, where we're exploring an A to Z of everything engineering. Let's spin the wheel and see where we're engineering today. Over to Engers to spin the wheel. 
It's H. And H is for heritage. Thanks, Engers. So, what do we mean by heritage? It's a word we use to describe things like history, traditions and customs of countries, societies, companies and even schools. Historic buildings are part of our rich heritage. And today, we'll be taking a look at how engineering plays its part to maintain and protect them. You might have visited a historic castle or house, or a monument or famous old bridge. And whilst you might be thinking, what's engineering got to do with something that's already built? Well, the answer is that many are old, and some are very old. And heritage engineering is about keeping them strong and safe for people to visit for many years to come. So let's dig into the details with Engers. Over to you. Heritage is an area of engineering that throws up some big challenges. But when you think about it, engineering is all about problem solving. Let's get ready to rumble! Challenge one! One challenge is that building materials have changed over the centuries. From simple stone and wood to more sustainable materials that we have today, which can be stronger and lighter in ways that improves insulation and strength. Great, right? Well, yes and no. Heritage Engineering aims to retain and protect as much of the original historic fabric as possible. After all, it wouldn't be right to cover a medieval castle with solar panels. It's not that these materials can't be used, they just have to be used in ways that preserve the look and feel of the original. Challenge 2! Next up, most old buildings weren't built with things like sprinkler systems, air conditionings or even electricity. These systems are crucial, not only to protect what's inside, like works of art, but also to maintain the safety of the building, especially if it has people coming in to work or visit. Known as MEP systems, that's mechanical, electrical and plumbing, engineers work hard to install these systems whilst causing as little damage as possible to the original floors, walls and ceilings. It can result in some creative thinking, like using flexible tubing for fire alarm wiring and to provide water for sprinklers, which can be slid into wall and ceiling cavities. Clever stuff! Challenge 3! In order to know what needs to be done and how best to make repairs, it's crucial to know what you're dealing with. So you need to look at a plan, right? Well, yes, but there aren't always plans of the original building. They may never have been made or have been lost over time, and changes over the centuries may mask what's underneath. And it's not as simple as digging into the foundations or dismantling walls to find out about the structure of the building and to assess what needs repairing or find the source of problems such as damp. Doing that could damage the very heritage that we want to preserve. Luckily, modern technology provides engineers with some really cool ways to find out more. Infrared thermography is a non-destructive means of investigation that captures the heat energy emitted from a material which can be shown as an image on a screen. It's a technique that was used to manage repairs at Carlisle Castle. The castle has a history of dampness and lots of work has been carried out over the years, including inserting a damp-proof membrane in its flagstone roof. But the problems didn't go away. So they used infrared thermography to highlight areas of condensation in the interior walls and roof and damp in the masonry on the lower parts of the parapets, corners and flagstone joints. And this helped the right repairs to be made. 
Thanks, Engers. If you'd like to find out more, head over to the Fun Kids website. So that's Heritage Engineering, and it's been heavenly. Do you think there's any other types of engineers that begin with a letter H? How about hardware, heating, highway, or perhaps hydraulic engineering? Engineer Academy. Let's get to your questions then. I love, love, love this part of the show. If there's anything science-y that you want answered on this podcast, let me know. It's what I'm here for. I love learning about the universe and I will do the digging for you. There's a few ways that you can send a message to me. You can do it with a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com or you can fire over a quick review on Apple Podcasts. That's what Owen has done, who is nine, who wants to know what's the deadliest animal. Thank you, Owen. It's quite a strange answer, this. When you think of the deadliest animal on Earth, well, it's not something huge with giant sharp teeth or incredible claws. It's not massive at all. It's the opposite. The deadliest animal is the mosquito, those small creepy crawlies that fly through the air. You see, mosquitoes feed off blood from the human skin. They latch onto you in very hot, clammy countries and... They stay there on your skin and they bite into you and suck your blood. That's how they stay alive. The problem is they carry diseases with them. And there are almost 110 trillion mosquitoes on the planet. And when they suck blood, they pass over diseases like malaria, dengue fever and Zika virus. And these are horrible diseases which kill almost 1 million people every single year. How amazingly shocking is that just ridiculous it's something so tiny that does the most damage it's horrible that this happens and that's why the deadliest animal isn't something huge it's the tiny mosquito that carries all these diseases thank you owen we're staying in the animal kingdom for this question it comes in from l who is 10 left it as a review on apple podcasts l wants to know what's the longest living creature in the galaxy Well, our galaxy is over 100,000 light years across. It probably contains almost 400 billion stars, but we don't know if there are any other creatures that live in it apart from the ones here on planet Earth. So the longest living creature on this planet might be the longest living creature on the galaxy. We don't need to go far to try and find it. And here's what's strange. The longest living animal in the world is a clam. Shellfish. Maybe you eat shellfish, perhaps if you live by the sea or when you're on holiday, oysters, mussels, that kind of thing. Well, the clam can live for a long time and they can grow pretty huge too. The ocean quahog clam can live to be over 400 years old. Experts know this because they can count the rings on their shells to show how long they've lived. Just like you can when you slice right the way through the middle of a tree. Now, some of these clams were found in the ocean near Iceland and one called Ming had the Guinness World Record because it lived to be 507 years old. So, Al, that's the longest living creature that we know of in the galaxy. Ming, the clam, who lived to be 507. And this is really sad. Not a nice end to the story, I'm afraid. When the scientists did the research to find out how old it was, when they pulled it from the ocean to do some studies... It died. Such a sad ending. But Ming, the marvellous, 
the ocean quahog clam lived to be 507 years old thank you so much for the question l if you've got a question i would love to hear it with your voice i want you to be the star of the show get to funkidslive.com open up the free fun kids app you can record it there it's time for this week's dangerous dan now recently we have been looking at unique animal defense mechanisms We've heard about the lizard that shoots blood from its eyes, the frog that uses its bones as spikes, and this time we're learning about a creature that uses its own waste to get away. Let's head into the ocean to hear all about the pygmy sperm whale. Now, humans don't know that much about them. They're very tricky to spot in the wild. We know they're not much bigger than a dolphin with a head that's both wide and pointed, looks a bit like a shark's head. They're kind of pinkish with blues and greys also mixed over their skin. They are heavy. They're thick. They can weigh over 400 kilograms. The best part is, to defend themselves, they use poo. They get away with their waist. Now this is uh, quite icky, quite gross and disgusting, don't say I didn't warn you. When a predator approaches maybe a killer whale, they pump out a lot of poo, the pygmy sperm whale. A lot of poo. And then they flap their fins and their tails to swirl it around into a dark brownish black vortex, almost like a tornado cloud of feces. And it swirls around them, and when it's there blinding the predator with a slimy stink... They make a quick getaway. How amazing is that? What different creatures do in the wild, how they've learned to adapt to their situation and surroundings. So the pygmy whale... (laughs) So the pygmy sperm whale that uses its own waste, its own poo to get away, goes straight onto our Dangerous Dan list. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, you might have heard there are plans to send humans back to the moon in the next few years. And this makes me have a lot of questions. What will they do when they're there? How will they live? Where will they stay? Can they use the moon to go on further? I've tracked down someone who knows everything. Ed Turner is from the National Space Centre, knows all about lunar bases. Ed, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Nice to be here. How are you? I am perfectly well and so excited to learn about the moon. So just let's start off with the big one. Let's get it out of the way. Just what is a lunar base? Tell us, is it one tent? Is it entire cities? What's going on? Well, that really is the question. What will lunar bases be? Of course, lunar means on the moon. So these will be bases on the moon. Um, But that can literally be, you know, one small habitat where a couple of astronauts live. Uh, It could be an entire colony where, you know, people live their entire lives out there. That is something that maybe as, you know, humanity we work towards. But I think that's in the far distant future. Right now, uh, it would just be a couple of, you know, small habitats that people can live there. Now, humans haven't really been to the moon for 50 years or so. Way back when we were last going up to the moon in our Apollo missions, did we need lunar bases? Did, did astronauts stay there long enough to make it worthwhile? Well, technically, they did have lunar bases. We've already landed six lunar bases on the moon because a base is it's basically just a base of operations. So a uh, quite famous base is Tranquility Base, which was the uh, Apollo 11 lunar lander. Now, that was only there for, you know, 22 hours or so um, before blasting off again, taking the astronauts back into orbit. Um, And even the longest one on Apollo 17 was only there for 75 hours. Um, But a base is is just anywhere that people are staying for a, a certain amount of time on the lunar surface. So come the future in the next few years, what have you heard about perhaps 
uh, how NASA are thinking of lunar bases. What do they want? Are they trying to set them up as more long term things? What do we know? So uh, initially, well, uh, if we're thinking of long term goals with humanity, we're not thinking of the moon. We're actually thinking of further afield uh, to Mars, possibly further out into the solar system. And these are places that we're going to have to stay for a very long time. Um, you know, it takes nine months to get to the to Mars, and then you have to stay there for a few years before you can even have a transfer window back again to Earth. So planning these missions, practicing these missions on the moon is a really, really good idea. So, uh, you know, countries, we say NASA, but also uh, the Chinese Space Agency, the Russian Space Agency as well, they're planning these very long-term missions on the moon as practice for further missions in the future to places like Mars and beyond. And what are they thinking that they might need if they are long-term missions? We're thinking of being there for a little while on the moon. What what type of things do lunar bases needed? Well, this is the problem. When you think about uh, kind of, you know, uh, colonies, uh, you know, back when, you know, when uh, we were going to the New World, the Europeans were heading off to America. Um, we obviously had to take a lot of supplies with us, but we were able to get a lot of supplies when we got to the new world. So oxygen, obviously already there. Food, people were able to hunt, farm. They had resources there for building. They could find water. Uh, unfortunately, the moon doesn't really have any of that. So anything that we need to actually live, uh, we have to take with us. We have to take oxygen with us. We have to take water with us, food uh, and resources to build shelters. And this is a really big concentration on what things we can actually use that are already on the moon to help us with our bases. So what's really, really exciting is uh, NASA believes they have found uh, evidence of water ice on the moon hidden in permanently shadowed craters. Uh, and this is water that you know is exactly the same as here on Earth, pretty much. And if we can use that, if we can extract that, well, we can use it as water, of course. Um, we can also split it up into hydrogen and oxygen using something called electrolysis. And we can breathe the oxygen that we create and we can use the hydrogen as rocket fuel, which oh. is obviously very, very useful for, you know, if we can get stuff out to the moon, refuel it using stuff we've made on the moon, we can then send it further afield much more cheaply. How much do we need to think about where rockets or probes, anything like that, where, where it could land? Can we just... Can we drop anywhere on the moon or is the surface not quite right everywhere? So theoretically, we can land pretty much anywhere on the moon. Um, a lot of it is obviously very, very cratered. And the more craters you have, the more difficult it is to find a landing site. Um, one example of this is uh, in Apollo 11, when they were landing, they realized the place they were supposed to be landing was absolutely covered in rocks. So Neil Armstrong had to very quickly take control and change where they were going to be landing. Um, most the Apollo missions all landed on the near side of the moon because the moon is what we call tidally locked. We always see the same face of the moon. Um, and this means you get a really good signal back to Earth. But with the Artemis missions, when we're actually thinking of creating this lunar basis, we've actually, or NASA has decided on a place called Shackleton Crater, which is at the lunar south pole. And they've picked this for a number of different reasons. Uh, the first one is that water ice that I mentioned before. We think there's quite a lot of water ice around that area. So if we are able to utilize that water ice, we obviously want to be nearby. We don't want to have to be trekking for you know days to actually go and get this ice. 
And also the thing with the moon is it's it, the days on the moon are actually very, very long. They're about 28 days or so. So you have about 14 days of sunlight and then 14 days of complete darkness. And this is really, really difficult when you consider power. How are we getting electricity to our lunar base? In space, we often use solar panels because there's a lot of sunlight up in space, of course. Um, but in obviously in the darkness, solar panels aren't producing any electricity. Now with Shackleton Crater, there is actually pretty much almost permanent sunlight um, at the surface. So we're able to use solar panels for pretty much the entire time with only a few, you know, couple of days here and there where there's no sunlight, where we would use other power sources. Um, and this is also very, very useful as well because the difference in temperatures between day and night on the moon is actually a lot. It's about 250 degrees C. So it's very, very different temperatures ranging between day and night. But Shackleton Crater, this kind of levels out. So we only have one sort of middling temperature that we would have to deal with. So that's why NASA are aiming for there. Us humans, we like to have stuff. We like to collect things. And especially we have these huge countries and powers, America, Russia, China, all around the world that want things. What's going on with like land ownership on the moon? How much do we know about that? Have these countries already bracketed it off and said, right, we're America, we'll have this bit. China will say, right, okay, we'll have this bit there. How's that work? So this is actually a very, very interesting topic of conversation. It's actually illegal to own things out in space. Um, hmm. There is actually kind of space law and you can become a space lawyer. That is a real job that you can become. No. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of similar to maritime law in a way. Um, what you can own um, around uh, places. So... Each country owns what they have put on the moon, but that is it pretty much. So there's kind of this difficulty with um, Apollo 11 and sending people to the moon, because if we think about tourists, tourists are going to want to visit these very famous sites on the moon. And you want to visit Apollo 11, of course, the first footsteps on the moon. And those those footprints will still be there because there's no wind to blow them away. However, if lots and lots of tourists go to the moon, they might end up start ruining these very, very historical places. So NASA really wants to protect these areas, but they can't because they don't own the moon around the bases, the, the lunar landers that they set up. They only own the actual lunar landers themselves. So it's actually if, you know, for example, if Russia were to get to where America is planning to land first, that's just tough. America just has to pick somewhere else, I guess. So they only own the flag that was plopped down, or was there even a flag? Uh, yes, so each of the Apollo missions did plant a flag. I believe Apollo 11's flag is no longer standing, though, because there was a massive kind of uh, rush of exhaust when they launched back up into space, and I think it got probably got blown over by that time, unfortunately. But there are definitely some flags still on the moon. And, well, NASA, they, they know where they have landed do they have that specifically charted even though it's so many thousand miles yeah away? they definitely do and in fact we've even taken pictures of these lunar landing sites um using some of the orbiters the satellites that are around the moon with very very good cameras they've actually taken pictures of uh the lunar landers uh, possibly where we think some of the footprints go obviously not individual footprints we don't have cameras quite that good but we can actually take pictures of these places. 
Amazing. It's been such a treat to talk to you. Ed Turner, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's time to head up to Deep Space High. Now, this is the smartest school in the solar system, and we're lucky enough to go every week to learn all about the world and the galaxy all around us. This week with Professor Pulsar, we're hearing again about Mars. We're trying to set up a team to go there on Deep Space High, trying to find out what it's like, how we could live there, how we could land there. Now, the problem is dust is a fact of life on Mars. It gets everywhere. So this week, we're thinking about the challenges that dust might present the designers of the ExoMars rover. Deep Space High, Destination Mars. Okay, class. Goggles on. Just let me get the Mars Climatic Simulator going. Just programming in Martian dust clouds. Um, sir, we can't see anything with all this dust flying around. What did you say? We can't see anything. Turn it off. That's it. Did you say it's hard to see what's going on? Yes. Well, I better turn this off. That's better. Wow, I wouldn't like to be on Mars when there's a dust cloud. Pretty scary. Must make it impossible to use cameras. They won't see anything. And as cameras are used to navigate rovers, they won't be going anywhere either. Dust storms are quite common on Mars because the terrain is so dry and, well, dusty. Certain times of the year are worse than others, but one thing is certain. If you go to Mars, you have to be able to cope with dust. It made it really difficult to see. How do rovers manage when there's dust? Well, you've spotted one of the big design challenges for the makers of the Exo rovers. They have to take into account that at times there will be some tasks that can't be done. They also need to make sure that rovers aren't damaged by the dust and can still operate safely. Dust isn't good for delicate instruments. It can clog them up and cause damage like scratches. Yeah, tell me about it. I dropped my tablet computer on the beach. It wasn't the same after that. Robot designers need to ensure that anything delicate on a rover is protected from the dust, which can travel at 60 miles an hour. Can anyone think of another dusty problem? This time connected with the power. Well, the power on the rover is from solar panels. Which collect sunlight to convert into electricity. Which they can't do if the solar panels are covered in a thick layer of dust. That's right. Dust on the solar panels is a very big problem. There isn't a way to just brush the dust away. Luckily, the wind that deposits the dust on the panels will also blow most of it away. And back on again. Well, yes. Designers need to make the solar panels from materials which are very smooth and don't collect dust for long. I suppose if it's dusty, then the solar panels won't be able to capture much sunlight either, even if the panels are clear. Another design problem. Any idea how they get around that one? I suppose they could just make the panels bigger, so they capture as much light as possible. Exactly. Maximising the size of the solar panels is definitely part of a winning design, although the rover will have to carry them around, so they can't be too big and heavy. Why don't they just switch off when there's a dust storm? Well, as dust storms can last quite a long time, if you've waited for clear skies, well, you might be waiting a long time. But you're right that careful planning can help avoid the biggest problems. Look at this. The ExoMars rover is planned to operate for 218 sols, 
a sol is a Martian day. As the dust season can last for 296 sols, it makes sense for the mission planners to avoid this period altogether if possible. Yeah, it would be seriously annoying if it spent its whole mission waiting for the storm to pass. That's right. But because dust can't be 100% avoided, scientists schedule tasks and experiments to be done during dusty times which won't need to use the cameras or other delicate external equipment. Or maybe it could have a nice nap and wait for the storm to pass. Fortunately, rovers are rather more hard-working than you. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. If you've got any science questions that you want answered at all, leave it as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. If you've enjoyed any of the series we've had on this week's show, you can hear loads of them on that free Fun Kids app, on Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Hear us all over the country on your DAB digital radio or at funkidslive.com. 